Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're going to talk about genetic improvement of an important fruit crop that we all recognize. Uh, one a day keeps the doctor away. You give one to your teacher if he or she is doing a reasonable job. Yeah, that's the apple, right? And apples, we think of so many varieties in the grocery store that, okay, you've got your Red Delicious, your Golden Delicious, your Fuji's, your Gala's, your whatever you got. But that big selection represents only a tiny sliver of the number of varieties that are out, that are out there, which experts say is more than 8,000 different kinds of apples that are available. So why so many, but yet we see so few? And really what it is, is the few that were selected for wide commercial growth are those that can be stored or those that can be shipped, uh, those that can survive disease because Apple has many different challenges to be able to grow it. So today we're going to speak with Dr. Aves Khan. He's, in, he's an associate professor in the School of Integrated Plant Science at Cornell University, and he's an expert in apple disease and apple breeding. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Khan. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really, really neat. I, I really was excited that you, you were able to join us because we've talked about apples on the podcast before. It's been a while, and really it was about time we started to come back to speed with this particular crop. So let's start at the beginning. If I'm an average listener, I'm, as I mentioned in the introduction, there's so many different kinds of apples. Um, apples aren't broken, right? So why are scientists trying to improve them? Yeah, so uh, it's a very good question. And uh, as you said, there are so many pathogens out there. There are so many biotic and apiotic stresses for apples or uh, for any crop out there. And pathogen populations are also changing over time. But in addition to that, also consumer demand and preference for different traits is changing uh, with, uh, with time. So... Uh, to meet all these challenges for apple production, which is uh, bacterial pathogens, fungal diseases, viral diseases, as well as insect and pest pressure, and abiotic stresses like drought, heat stress, and so on, and consumer preferences, we need to really come up with new varieties which can perform in these stressful environments. Okay, so new varieties. So how long does it take to make a new variety? I mean, it must just be, what, a couple of months? Oh, that's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. So we are talking about apples. And let's step back and think about uh, how apple breeding could be done. I think uh, to do apple breeding, we have to think about biology and genetics of apples. So apples are heterozygous. They are... Uh, highly heterozygous, I will say that uh, at each part of their genome, there's a lot of diversity there, as well as they are, they have a, a very long juvenile phase. So if you grow apples from seed until you get first flower, it can be 
four to six years or seven years, depending on which uh, which variety of apples you are uh, growing. So if you take these two factors in account, the high level of heterozygosity as well as the juvenile phase, and if you think that an apple breeder should, uh, needs to make four to five crosses, so you can multiply five years of journal phase with five crosses, it will be 25 years. So it's a long process until you can get some reasonable quality and some reasonable traits in a new background. And so when you're talking about a juvenile phase, it really is a juvenile phase that really is characterized by uh, the inability to reproduce, right? You can't flower during that phase. You're growing just kind of like a juvenile human. You're not competent for reproduction. So you have this long time you have to wait before you can make a cross. Then you make the cross. That means the next generation is a long juvenile phase. It just it takes forever. How much of a problem is it? You, know, you mentioned this idea of heterozygosity, which means that on, you got a chromosome from mom and a chromosome from dad. And a high degree of heterozygosity means that at any one point on those two chromosomes, they're not probably not the same. They're a good mixture of genetic variation. How much of a problem is this idea of self-incompatibility? So in other words, uh, most apples can't cross with themselves. You have to cross them with yet another completely different genome. So how much does that mix, mix the whole situation? Absolutely right. So we have different self-incompatibility alleles in apples. And when a breeder is making choice of parents and making uh, this, uh, designing a breeding program or making plan for crossing, they have to really account for that because they cannot cross uh, apples which us which have similar as alleles uh, because those apples will not be self um, they, they will be uh, incompatible. And also, if you want to create homozygosity at certain regions in the genome, like certain uh, genes or alleles which control specific traits, but you need to make selfing. And that is also not possible, as you said. So um, therefore, we have to work with uh, heterozygous genomes which create a lot of variation at each locus. One example could be that if you take an apple, it has uh, chromosomes from father and mother, and in, at each locus, one uh, gene which controls, for example, fire blood resistance, you can have two versions of that gene in one parent. And then you have a chromosome from another parent. It, it can have another two different alleles. So at the end, in the progeny, in the first generation, you might have four alleles of the same trait for the same gene segregating in the progeny. So a lot of variation in uh, a given cross. And you mentioned uh, fire blight is one of the... Uh... The you know, low side, for instance, resistance to fire blight. What are the major problems to apple? What are the major challenges in getting it to grow and be productive? So there, there are a lot of uh, challenges for uh, apple production and any crop you, you, you talk about. So we have to really think about the whole value chain from 
you know, start to the uh, end to, until a product goes to the consumer. So I can talk more uh, specifically about breeding challenges or uh, genetic challenges. Um, so in terms of uh, production system and in the production system, you can have a lot of diseases. And I mentioned previously, you can have a range of fungal diseases out there. You can have range of uh, bacterial diseases. You can have range of viral diseases and insected pest pressures as well as abiotic stresses out there. So uh, uh, an apple grower has to deal with all this uh, biotic and abiotic stresses in the field. But at the same time, I think there are also economic pressures at, as well as uh, availability of labor, availability of different mechanical options for managing the crop uh, as well as storage issues. So again, uh, you can look at the whole entire uh, whole uh, entire value chain, and you see a lot of problems out there. And with so many of these, um, at least biotic stress problems, I thought we were getting on the other side of that because there were genes that were associated with things like you know, like the VF gene or the genes for apple scab, the genes for um, that were associated with resistance to uh, fire blight, uh, some of the disease issues. Um, rootstocks that conferred some resistance. And so just for the audience, apples are always a clone top or they take a cutting from a top and then you graph that onto a rootstock and the rootstocks confer a certain degree of uh, resistance for certain diseases or control growth or size or whatever. So we're talking about the scion, the top part of the tree. So um, are there, has there been good genetic discovery in resistant material to things like fire blight and, and other diseases? Yeah, so th there is a lot of research uh, which has been done to understand the genetic control of disease resistance in apples. So as you mentioned about apple scab, there are more than 18 genetic regions in the genome of apples. Uh, they have been, uh, these have been identified to confer resistance to apple scab. So the level of resistance for this 18 to 20 loci uh, is different. Some are major, some are moderate, some are minor effects. Uh, when we talk about fire blight, also a large number of uh, QTLs or uh, alleles for resistance have been identified uh, to show resistance for fire blight and so on. But I think in the main challenge is how to incorporate that resistance into breeding lines or uh, to, to use it for uh, breeding resistant apple cultivars. And I think one of the constraints there is most of these resistances are identified in wild apple germplasm, uh, apple accessions coming from different uh, mollus species, apple belongs to a genus called mollus. So those are, uh, for general audience, we can call them crab apples. And those crab apples really have very low fruit quality, fruit size you can also refer to. And when you make cross with uh, good quality apples, you will get uh, uh, 
first generation, which will be very low fruit quality and very low for the consumer trades. And then I mentioned previously that juvenile phase is very long for Apple. So to retrieve good quality, one has to make several crosses and it's going to be several years until you retrieve good fruit quality. So that's a big challenge. I mean, loci have been characterized, but how to incorporate them in breeding programs, that's a big challenge. Well, that's one of the big issues. The other part of this though is have the priorities for breeders changed over the years? I know that if you don't have disease resistance, you've got nothing. How much emphasis is there on things like flavor and aroma now? Maybe even flesh color for apples. So uh, here I have, uh, based on my own understanding of apple and breeding genetics and how apple industries, I think that more emphasis for apple uh, breeding and genetics so far has been given to fruit quality and consumer traits rather than disease resistance. And there is a reason for that because consumers, they are more into fruit quality traits and uh, maybe cosmetic appearance of the fruit. Say, uh, don't see what is going behind the screen which is really the struggle of the apple grows to deal with disease, uh, diseases in their orchards and uh, in their production system. So, so far, I think a lot of focus and emphasis was given to, uh, to, to fruit quality traits in apples, in, in my opinion. Uh, there have been some, uh, uh, in past, there were some programs, breeding programs like PRI, Purdue, Roetgar, Illinois breeding program. Uh, that was really focused on disease resistance, but um, I think it takes a lot of effort and long time term commitment to really breed for disease resistance. Yeah, that's, that's, and you always can control it with uh, other types of controls. You know, you could spray or whatever if you have a relatively small orchard. There are other ways that don't require the use of genetic controls to be able to confer resistance or well, at least to confer tolerance, I should say, uh, to disease. So this is all really good stuff. We're speaking with Dr. Aves Khan. He's an associate professor at Cornell University, and we're talking about the genetic improvement of apples and where it is. And now after the break, we'll talk about where it's going. This is Collaborate's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Aves Khan. He is a, an associate professor at Cornell University, working in genetic improvement of apples, primarily around the uh, aspects of disease. And when we were leaving it off before, we we're talking about uh, the, the problem with apple breeding that it takes a really long time 
to generate a new favorite line. And that the new lines not only have to have all the resistance to disease, but also have to have size shipping and be reasonably flavored and colored. I mean, all the things consumers want. And so what you're trying to find is this very tiny little overlap in the Venn diagram uh, that happens only once in a very long time, like once in thousands of trees that you may get a favorable combination of genes that is commercially viable. So are there other ways to do this? And so I'd like to focus on biotechnology and what's being hap what's happening right now in breeding programs with respect to like say genomic selection and marker assisted breeding. So uh, Kevin, you have seen that there are a lot of developments uh, on genomics and genome sequencing side, and especially for rosaceous fruit crops. And so uh, if you remember, the Apple genome sequence was published first in 2010, and now we have many genome sequences of apples available and very high quality of genome sequences. And then on the other hand, there are a lot of developments on biotechnology side. We have seen new opportunities with, with transformation, genome editing, and at the same time on genetic analysis side, new tools and analytical platforms have been developed and pipelines have been assembled, for example, for genomic selection and also marker or genome assisted selection. So all these developments with, um, within Apple genomics sequencing and also a broader community of biotechnology, biotechnologists and geneticists, uh, we are in a very good spot at this time uh, that we can make big differences in uh, accelerating the improvement of uh, of perennial trees, specifically apples, and uh, um, develop new varieties, which are really, uh, really good for the production systems, environment, and as well as for the consumers. Yeah, well, let me backfill that just a little bit, just to keep the consumers engaged who are trying to figure out what is this genomic selection thing. And when you have genomic selection, it means that you're able to look at members of a population or members of, of well, any plant's genome and identify specific regions that maybe associate with a trait that you're interested in, say a certain flavor or color of the flesh or disease resistance, and then be able to look for these little signatures uh, in seedlings. So you can make a cross, look to see if those seedlings carry those little signatures. And that way, instead of having to grow the tree for five years to find out if it makes a fruit that is reasonable and that resistant to disease, you can have a certain statistical likelihood that that seedling will have a favorable presentation of the traits of interest. And so this kind of genomic selection really has accelerated breeding and challenging fruit crops, especially tree fruits. So let's talk about the idea of transgenics that happen. And we, we think of these as the genes where, or these plants where we can move a gene from one to another. Uh, we know that, um, you know, there's this Arctic apple that was, was available. What is that? And is it something that's really available? Uh, yeah, so first I go a little bit to the genomic selection. I think genomic selection, because uh, we can develop now a lot of uh, large number of 
DNA markers across the whole genome of apples or any any crop, and we can develop this prediction models to uh, to predict what trait will be in the progeny without phenotyping them in the future. So depending on the traits, if they are highly heritable or if they have low heritability, we can apply genomic selection to to a certain extent. But marker assisted selection are uh, 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 it, ca it can be a way to move forward for highly heritable traits where we have diagnostic markers for, for example, disease resistance. Uh, now to your uh, second uh, part of the question, Arctic apples. I mean, that was a uh, that is a big uh, big development uh, and encouraging for all of us in uh, who are working with biotechnology and crop improvement because this are. Uh, RNAi interference-based technology to silence uh, this PPO gene, which uh, if you don't silence it, it can create browning of uh, fruit, um, was a huge success, and uh, it has been approved from uh, by the US uh, by the by FDA, and those Arctic apples are now available. You can also go to Amazon. A fresh market, and in certain places you can uh, you can purchase those uh, Arctic apples. Uh, they have been developing Arctic apples in the background of Golden Delicious, as well as uh, Gala Granny Smith, and I think they will be exploring uh, in different backgrounds as well. So it's really encouraging and a huge uh, opportunity for all of us who are working with biotechnology. Yeah, it's exciting that that went through because it was really the first fruit other than the papaya uh, to, to get approved, but also had a consumer-facing trait, right? All the other traits in genetic engineering were to make things better for the consumer. I'm sorry, for the farmer. This one was making a product that was better for the consumer. And so that made things pretty exciting. But aren't there varieties of apples that have very low PPO oxidase activity already so that you wouldn't have to use a transgenic to get to the same place? Uh, there is variation in uh, the expression of PPO gene uh, within apples, but I think still to get to that reasonable uh, decrease in the expression and to to keep it non-browning for that long time, uh, I think uh, this is uh, really uh, the way to go forward. So there are close to 10, 11 PPO-related genes in apples. And uh, this uh, RNAi-based uh, silencing reduces it, uh, reduces the expression up to 10% of the original level of uh, uh, this enzyme. So that's really, uh, really uh, the big advantage of this technology. Uh, whereas if you use natural variations, there will be still uh, still variation in there and we cannot achieve to that level of. What about other transgenic apple modifications that have been particularly exciting or particularly useful? And um, also, uh, again, my research in uh, fire blight and disease resistance, we have seen that uh, people have used uh, transgenes of our, I will say cis genes, uh, genes from uh, uh, other sp smaller species 
and then transform gala apples, which are highly susceptible to fire blight. And they reduced significant level of fire blight susceptibility in gala against fire blight. So uh, there are uh, several disease resistant uh, genes which have major, uh, uh, major impact on disease uh, susceptibility and resistance. People have functionally proved that you can get very high level of resistance if you transform apples with those genes. But those genes are present in wild crab apples. And if you use breeding approach, even if it's molecular-assisted breeding, still it's a long way to achieve that level of resistance through breedings uh, of the same gene. Well, I think they demonstrated that very well with the VF genes. So the genes associated with uh, apple scab, right? That, that's apple scab. Uh, that uh, they began breeding for this in what the 1940s with there's a Malus floribunda that had the resistance or, or Sylvestria, whatever it was. One of the wild apple species had a resistance gene that they bred in, and it took some something like 50 or 60 years. Whereas a group in the Netherlands took the gene out of that out of that wild apple and plugged it into domestic apple, and was done in five years. Absolutely. And uh, you're referring to VF gene, which is coming from Mollus floribunda A21, which is Japanese crab apple. And if you look at that apple, uh, I have that apple growing in my apple collection here. Uh, these are very small crab apples. Uh, you don't want to eat them, but you will never try them again. But breeding, as you said, this PRI program was uh, breeding for resistance of scab, and they used that in uh, Floribunda 81 to, to bring it to commercial background, but it took a very long time. That's right. And with uh, genome-based, uh, uh, biotechnology-based approaches, it really takes a very short, um, less time compared to conventional approaches. Absolutely. What about the transgenes that control flowering and how can those be helpful inside a breeding program? Yeah, this uh, really brings uh, uh, very close to my own specific interest. And I will say that my program is really interested to develop pre-breeding lines. The lines which are available to the breeders to use for developing final cultivar or final product, I will say. And I have been thinking for a long time, okay, what is the best way to achieve that in a reasonable time to bring the diverse, diversity present in wild malus germplasm so that can be used in breeding programs and consumers and producers can use it and enjoy it. So as we said, apple breeding takes a long time. So one approach I see is Pre-breeding programs can use different approaches to develop disease-resistant pre-breeding lines. And I'm using one of this approach, and that approach is I'm using early flowering transgenic lines of apples, uh, which were developed uh, by a pro research program in Germany. And I have those lines in my greenhouse, and we use these lines to make cross with wild apples. So basically these lines which make early flowering, uh, if you plant seeds from these lines, uh, they will start flowering 
in one year instead of five to six years. Okay. So now we use these lines to cross with wild apples. And because we know which gene we have in these lines, and we also know which gene is present in the wild apples for disease resistant, we can use DNA markers to do selection of first generation, which carry both early flowering gene as well as disease resistant gene. And then first generation seedling, which has both of these traits, we cross it back to your favorite apple, for example, Honeycrisp. And then when we cross with Honeycrisp, the next generation which we get, we again select for early flowering and that disease resistant gene which we were intending to uh, incorporate in Honeycrisp background. And in a way, we are trying to increase the proportion of good quality, good quality traits of apples in, uh, together with uh, the disease resistance by accelerating it through early flowering gene. And in this process, we can also incorporate another disease resistant gene from another background as well. In this process, we can also speed up and make cross of this second generation, uh, early flowering and disease resistant line with another good quality apple so that we don't uh, have the issue of self-incompatibility or, in, uh, or uh, crossing with the same background again and again. So in that way, I foresee that in four, five years, we will have pre-breeding lines which have two, three disease-resistant traits in the same background together with early flowering gene. And now at that stage, depending on the goal, I can select against early flowering or I can keep early flowering and make future crosses to incorporate more disease-resistant or other traits in that background. But if I select it against it, then I can make this pre-breeding line without early flowering gene to the breeder to make next uh, crosses for final uh, cultivar development. So that's my approach at this point. That's really cool. I think it, using these kinds of tools to accelerate because the end product is not genetically engineered, right? You're just using the rootstock that's genetically engineered to induce the scion on the flower. Is that how it works? So in this case, uh, uh, the scion is um, a trans, uh, transgenic. The gene which we have in this line is from silver birch. It's from uh, another plant, silver birch. And the sign is transgenic because we are collecting pollens or we are using the, that uh, transgenic line as a mother plant. But as I said, that we, we know which gene we have put in this, uh, this uh, transgenic line. And we have DNA markers. We can select it precisely select it out precisely when we really want to select it out. And to con further confirm it, now we can also do deep genome sequencing 
and make sure that this newly developed early uh, newly developed disease resistant lions they don't have any trace of uh, transgene or even early flowering gene from silver birch and that can be done very precisely with the high depth genome sequencing yeah, I totally remember now. I forgot I read that paper about the silver birch gene. That's kind of how we connected, I think, because I was interested in how do you make something flower faster? I'm intrigued with ancient apple germplasm that is present in the South. I live in the deep South. And in the 1800s, every yard had a tree throughout Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. And in North Florida, you didn't really have it. But there are some trees here that are spectacular. And you find some varieties that are old varieties from the, 19, or the 1830s, 1860s, 1880s, where these trees are, are alive and well on their own roots or on maybe just generic apple roots. So putting them on modern rootstocks may really be an exciting opportunity. But these trees have resistance to disease just, you know, they were all selected before you had pests and pathogen uh, controls like fungicides. So you pick these things that are super hardy that maybe don't have the best fruits in the world and maybe not the most storable fruits. But this is really what I'm interested in. How much work is there being done right now to kind of curate that old germplasm and maybe look at it for uh, genes associated with disease resistance? Yeah, that's a very good question. And uh, I really think that uh, we should go a little back to uh, in history to, to really uh, talk about this uh, collection and the germplasm. So if, if we really think that when we got this domesticated apples in, the, in North America, in this continent, and it's 1600s, uh, the Europeans came to uh, Americas and they brought apples with them. And we also know that host and pathogen, they co-evolve in the same environment when they are there for a long time. So now if we can really think that, uh, and we really know that apples, domesticated apples, never had chance to co-evolve with uh, the pathogens present in this continent until uh, before they came here in 1600s. So most of these apples are susceptible to uh, domesticated apples are susceptible to a wide variety of pathogens and insects. But luckily we all have access to one world's one of the largest collection of Mollusk species here in uh, Geneva, New York, which is uh, which is uh, uh, which is in responsibility of USDA and Cornell as well. And we have more than six thousand different apple accessions in this collection. It's world's largest collection, and it has more than maybe thirty different species of mollusks in this collection. And you can see apples from Kazakhstan, apples from Turkey, apples from uh, uh, Northern Europe, from Asia, from everywhere uh, around the world. And this diversity of apples has a lot of traits which are very important for 
breeding for biotic and abiotic stress tolerance as well as production traits. And many researchers in the US and around the globe, they have been exploring and screening for and characterizing this diversity for many traits. So my program has also used this collection for a long time to look at scab resistance, to look at fire blight resistance, to look at powdery mildew resistance and so on. So a lot of uh, germplasm novel sources of resistance have been identified in this germplasm, but uh, now we have to move to another lab stage and that stage is really how to make use of this diversity uh, and put it in the production system so that we can actually experience and enjoy that diversity for flavor, for fruit quality traits, for disease resistance, for the production traits. And as I was saying earlier that now we have so many tools available and opportunity around, uh, around genomics, genetics, as well as biotechnology and accelerated breeding. And we are, and many programs are really now trying to make use of this diversity to this the next level. Oh, that's really cool. I think uh, it's, maybe it's kind of a goal in my lifetime. I only got maybe 50 years left to come up with the <laughs> Florida. Well, but, I, but I, I think that we can do it. I mean, there's some really interesting things that came out of Israel, came out of um, University of Florida um, that were low chill apples, but they're also have seen, and, and you can tell me if I'm crazy, that we've planted things like Honeycrisp here in Florida and they flower just fine with 400 chill hours. And other, um, a, a friend of mine who's going to be my student, uh, down in Orlando, he has apples growing on trees with probably a hundred chill hours. So it seems like there are other factors at play with with malus that maybe we haven't we just haven't tried it with the right rootstocks and the right cultural conditions, and that things like defoliation, which they do in the tropics, other ways may allow farmers in warmer areas to be able to start to grow this crop if you can manage the disease. So it may just be that uh, I'm kind of thinking that uh, Apple may be finding an interesting new renaissance between the efforts with molecular breeding, things that are going on in your program, um, things that are going on in Minnesota and in Washington, but then, and all around the world for that matter, uh, but also, you know, trying to expand its range a little bit and looking at some of the old germplasm. So, you know, what do you think is the future for Apple? Where are we going next? Yeah, so uh, you're right. I have uh, this Anna apple uh, from Israel, and uh, this is also, you know, one of the earliest, uh, earliest maturing apple here in uh, upstate New York. So there are a lot, a lot of uh, uh, apples which are grown in southern. Uh, regions, for example, in Israel, as you were saying, but also South Africa, and uh, they have very low chill hours, and I think it should be explored in more depth. Another, I think, interesting thing, I, I will say that we were talking about Manus species, and there are four Manus species which are native to North America. Uh, Manus iensis, Caronaria, Angustifolia, and also Manus fusca. And a very interesting thing is Malus angustifolia. Malus angustifolia, which is the crab apple, I would say, 
uh, it's really the native range is close to Georgia and uh, uh, Florida up uh, uh, northern side. So I think uh, some programs now I know that they have started to explore the adaptation of those uh, wild wildlife species in this area and look at what genes are controlling that. And I think that uh, res the result of that research will be very interesting to, to, to see uh, what genetic potential Mala species hold for this uh, southern environment. I was excited to try to find Angustifolia just to use it as a rootstock. Yeah, exactly. And as, as you said, the rootstocks modify a lot of traits of sign over uh, grafted sign. So I think that is another area of exploration that how rootstock modifies sign traits. Is it true? you know, the movement of transcripts from the sign to the, the uh, from the rootstock to sign through the craft union and how, what level of control that could be. And then again, I think this chilling requirement, uh, how it will be uh, grafting on different rootstocks. So I think it will be very exciting research really to look at. But uh, your, your, I think the question about the uh, future of Apple breeding and future of apple production. I think uh, uh, I will say that there are so many opportunities now for apple breeding. Uh, we can even think of designer apple cultivars. Uh, we have so many niches uh, uh, which need you know specific traits. For example, uh, the environment in uh, uh, Northeast is very different from the environment in West Coast, Washington State, and New York. Uh, soils are very, very different. So far, we were really going for, you know, kind of brush approach, a broad approach, trying to fit one uh, apple in all these different ranges. But now we can really think about the, uh, the regional uh, uh, needs, be more uh, more aware of what pathogens are in this region, what pathogens are in that region, what are the consumer demands uh, in uh, in this region, in uh, what are the consumer demands in other regions. Also, depending on the shelf life and storage facilities of uh, the availability. So there are so many uh, things uh, which are really uh, creating this opportunity for breeding species, um, cultivars specific to those environments and those uh, uh, abiotic and biotic stress resistant uh, traits. Well, very cool. Well, if you've ever developed anything, you want to try it in Florida, which is the hellscape for disease <laughs> for apples, um, you know, give me a call. So, uh, Dr. Aves Khan, thank you so much for your time today and talking about uh, the future of, well, kind of the past, present, and future of apple breeding. And when something exciting happens, give me a call and let's, uh, let's do this again. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, ranked among the top podcasts in the life sciences on iTunes. And that's because of your loyal listenership. So let's see if we can take it a little further. Tell a friend to join the podcast, to listen to and download every single week. Uh, we're gaining more momentum with time. Uh, and it's all because of wonderful guests and an awesome listenership that understands that science is something we need to share. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.